Hello there, this is Robin Taylor Zander, and you're listening to your Morning Coffee Podcast with Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Weekly music news for the new music business. From Wired, AI-generated music is about to flood streaming platforms. From the Wall Street Journal, Spotify breaks down the mapping technology behind its algorithm. And from Variety, venues need to stop shaking down artists for every last dollar. Boy, this is a varied and diverse episode, Jay. What can you say? So we are glad you're here. Jay and I are going to get started right about now. Stand by for transmission. This is London calling. Wake up! The revolution is at hand! Your morning coffee is on the air. Your morning coffee, the weekly music news for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. Now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Let's see, as I look at the clock, and we have been chatting for 34 minutes. Before That's short we for us. Did this. It is short for us. That's exactly right. Yes, Well, we is. had to get into it. We have so much to uh, cover this week. But before we do, how about that intro, Robin Taylor Zander? That is uh, the son of Cheap Trick lead vocalist, Robin Zander, of course. Um, his album just dropped, and you uh, listened to a little bit of the title track, The Distance fantastic album and uh, we're, we're very thankful that uh, Robin popped by and you can uh, you can hear the family resemblance in the songs mm-hmm. and in the voice and uh, as we've mentioned I happened to see him standing in for Rick Nielsen at the concert that at the Cheap Trick show I saw which was yeah. really interesting I think he life. stood in for um, every member Tom. except drums he did with yes. Tom when, when Tom was out he did with Rick and I saw a video um, that was in the Rolling Stone piece of him singing Downed uh, the song Downed uh, by Cheap Trick and I didn't see Robin on the stage so maybe he even filled in at some point uh, for his dad but uh, yeah fantastic yeah super talented kid because I can say that now um, <laughs> yeah <laughs> he's He's, he's really good, and uh, yeah. if you happen to get a chance to see him, you will not be disappointed and, right. and check out the album for sure. Yeah. Uh, so many things to tell. You've been a busy guy this week. Let's be honest, Jay. You've, <sighs> you've, uh, we were going to do this yesterday, in fact, and uh, you were doing a little photo shoot. And you know, When do you sleep? Well, I, I love what I do, and I never miss an opportunity. Uh, I, I did uh, a photo shoot with Rick Springfield for his new album, and he's a uh, longtime friend, client, and just one of the hardest working people you've ever met. Um, he just does not stop. You know, a couple of best-selling books, and you know, he's always writing and recording new albums. He's always touring, and he's he's just an inspiration uh, when it comes to that sort of thing. And uh, it was fantastic, but it was kind of a bummer because 
I didn't get to attend record store day for the first mm. time in, in many, many years. And record store day was just massive. You know, I think you and I talked about last week, 300 titles on vinyl that were exclusive to record store day Amazing. and you can still get those. So if you missed record store day, that product, uh, you know, didn't all sell out. Some of it did, but some of that product is still in stores. And I just wanted to give you a couple of highlights that a, a friend of mine over at the orchard sent me, um, shake it up records, which is out of Cincinnati. It was their best day ever by one thirty in the afternoon on record store days. Wow. Uh, seasick records, best day they ever had. Um, that's in Birmingham, Alabama, Looney tunes in New York, uh, best day in their 52 year history. A couple more rough trade in New York. Um, they had like 400 people in line. Waterloo in Texas, wow. in Austin, Texas, such a great store. Um, that was their biggest biggest record store day, and they had like 540 people in line. It was just, uh, by all accounts, uh, a success. So congratu congratulations to Michael Kurtz and uh, all the people at uh, Record Store Day for another fantastic uh, job. And it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. Just when you think it couldn't get bigger, it gets bigger. I mean, yeah. just remarkable. And yeah. I mean, it's a lot of hard work behind the scenes, as we talked about, you know, the kind of lead notice that they need to participate in that yeah. is, is darn near a year out. But man, it's look at the success. Yeah. Okay. And for those that don't know, if you want to participate in Record Store Day, if you're an artist, um, the deadline is May 2nd. So um, go to their website, get that taken care of. The next record store day is Black Friday, um, which is, of course, the day after Thanksgiving. And that's Thanksgiving. November 24th this year. So, uh, again, kudos to record store day. Yes, indeed. And uh, because you never sleep, Jay, you were on the Tower Records podcast, the 2500 Del Monte Street, the oral history of Tower Records. How did you find yourself? I mean, you worked at Tower Records. I yeah. get that. Yeah. And then then now a, you're on the podcast. I got a nice note from Bob Zimmerman, uh, who does this thing. And, it, and it's it's one of my favorite podcasts. I just I love it because I worked at Tower for four and a half years and I loved every minute of, of it. Um, you and I were talking earlier, you know, it was kind of like that movie High Fidelity. It was just a lot of characters that lived <laughs> totally. and breathed uh, music. And we were the, uh, you know, recommendation engine, so to speak. People would come in and ask what was good and you would help them. Or you could put on a record just like in High Fidelity. You could put on a record in the store and just know X amount of people were going to come up and say, what is that? I'd like to buy that. That's mm -hmm. it was it was very powerful stuff. It was a lot of fun. And thank you to Bob for having me on the uh, podcast again. It's twenty five hundred Del Monte Street, the oral history of Tower Records. And we just had such an amazing conversation. And I think that comes out in a couple of weeks. Well, and, you know, if, if you if you weren't old enough to remember, um, you know, back and I, and I was recounting to you um, when I was when I, I we lived in Sacramento for one year and which is where Tower is based. That's which, where which is based. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. And so and I remember going into a, a, a Tower Records store and just going, oh, my God, this is <laughs> unbelievably cool. But, you know, where I and I was buying records before that. But, you know, for a long time, especially if you were growing up in the 60s and the 70s, you could go to like the, the precursor to Macy's was a store here in Southern California called the Broadway. Yeah. And so a lot of these kind of stores had record sections. So they weren't really record stores. They sold records, but they weren't like a record store like no. Tower Records was. So no. I had been to buy records and I had bought records. But when you then but going into Tower That's in Sacramento was like, you know, the angels sang. I mean, it was just, oh, yeah. these are these are my people. This is my happy place. Yeah. And uh, suddenly, you know, as a kid, you're like, boing, this is like hit in the head. This is cool. And this yeah. is where I want to hang. So The only thing close I, to it today is um, there's so many great record stores, you know, uh, Music Millennium in Portland, some of the ones that I just mentioned. But uh, I love Amoeba. And mm -hmm. you walk into Amoeba in Los same Angeles thing. and it's it's almost that same feeling where it's just it's almost overwhelming. Uh, just the CDs and vinyl and videos and posters and rarities and, you know, collectibles, just everything uh, for a music freak. It's one of those things that you can go in there and literally lose the day. You can stay yes. there for hours. And it reminds me of, you know, if you've ever been to Powell's Books in Portland, Oregon, it covers like multiple city blocks it's so many different 
you know, stores within a store, but it's, it's just overwhelming. You know, you go there in the morning, you meet your friends for coffee in their coffee shop, and then you, you know, you close the day because it's just, there's too much to see. Well, and it's also like you were saying, it's the people, you know, it's like when you walk into those record stores, you, you see your people. And, and that's your tribe. Made it. Yeah. Yes, your tribe. And one thing that Tower did really well, you know, there were lots of chain stores and Tower was a chain, but they still managed to have that sort of individual feel. They and, did. And, and it had a funk and kind of a wildness that the warehouse didn't have or, you know, a lot of the big chains. It was it was kind of wild in there. There were there were there were people that couldn't work anywhere else. That's for sure, yeah. <laughs> because that that's they wouldn't have gotten regular jobs. But it was. Yeah, it, it was, was a it was the island yeah, was of misfit different. toys. And mm-hmm. if you ever want to see, you know, what that was like, there's a great documentary called All Things Must Pass. Yes. Um, and don't miss that documentary. It is. It's awesome. It'll give you a sense of who Tower was and, and a little bit of the downfall, but really more about the joy of how it got started and just it was part of the culture. Uh, Russ Solomon, well done. Well, and then, and I happened to re-listen to, there was a, 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 a series of, of um, uh, short podcasts that were called The Great Fail, and the one on Tower Records is really interesting. It talks about those last years and how it... Yeah. Uh, I listen oh, to sad. that. I think you yeah. turned me on to that podcast. It's really good. We are sounding like old people, Jay, when we kind of reminisce about <laughs> these things. Get off my Guilty. lawn. Guilty yeah. as charged. Yeah. Well, we've got a couple of audio drops, um, and let's talk about the first one, Jay. It's got Portia Sabin in it. She's a yep. strong advocate for the music industry, especially the independent side. She's currently the president of the Music Business Association. She spent 13 years running indie label Kill Rockstars and six years as host of the Music Business Podcast and radio show The Future of What? Yeah, they, uh, they interviewed her in uh, Billboard magazine. There was a piece by Stephen Day, um, and the headline was Why the Music Business Association is Righteously Indignant Over Tennessee's Anti-LGBTQ Laws. And uh, kind of a subheadline, uh, President Portia Sabin says she's received calls from projected attendees for the annual Music Biz Conference in Nashville that you and I have been talking about a lot lately, uh, that, that these people are afraid, in quotation marks, of the state's latest laws. And I know Portia. I'm a big fan of Portia. Um, she is an amazing woman, um, amazing person. And uh, I had a chance to see her recently in Nashville, and I had a chance to uh, talk to her a little bit um, over Zoom um, about this piece in Billboard um, and and a statement that the Music Business Association uh, recently released. Let's listen in. Portia, thanks so much for joining me today. It's always good to see you. I read this piece in Rolling Stone Yesterday, uh, the headline was Why the Music Business Association is Righteously Indignant Over Tennessee's Anti-LGBTQ Laws. And it references a statement from the Music Business Association regarding this. Uh, Tell us about that. The statement said the Music Business Association condemns the decision by Tennessee state lawmakers to pass recent discriminatory bills removing the rights of transgender youth to receive gender-affirming health care and effectively making the performance of drag shows in public places illegal. These bigoted actions are especially concerning as we believe the intentional use of vague inflammatory language will act as a gateway to encouraging acts of violence against the LGBTQ plus community. Our annual Music Biz Conference has brought more than 2,500 attendees from 30 countries and all walks of life to Nashville since 2015. In our second year in Nashville, we publicly condemned Tennessee lawmakers' support of the discriminatory HB 2414 bathroom bill and HB 1840 counseling discrimination legislation. Almost eight years later, and things appear to be getting worse, not better, for trans and LGBTQ plus people in this state. The music industry is built upon the work of artists, many of whom identify as trans, non-binary, genderqueer, and LGBTQ plus. Legislation like this threatens the safety of artists and others and will force businesses to reconsider holding events in this state. The safety of our conference attendees is central to our association and will be of paramount concern in planning future events under the Music Biz banner. Yeah, the part of the article in uh, Billboard 
that really hit home for me was you were quoted as saying, you know, basically sometimes enough is enough. At, at some point, businesses and consumers have to start sending messages to legislatures. Keep it up and you're going to lose our business. Is that a possibility? I think everything's always a possibility. I think all of our options are open. I would like to add to that, though, that, you know, voting is still an important um an important resource for us. You know, we vote with our dollars, but we also vote with our votes. We had uh, Senator Amy Klobuchar come through Tennessee, come through Nashville the other day. And when I was speaking to her about, um, you know, a variety of topics, she pointed out that Tennessee has the lowest percentage of registered voters in the nation. So there's clearly a lot of work to be done here in terms of just something as basic as getting people registered to vote. But then, of course, yes, voting with your dollars, very possible. You know, we have to send a message, especially, you know, we have just witnessed the most amazing, you know, melodrama here in Nashville in the state legislature with the expulsion of representatives Jones and Pearson um, for for no valuable reason, as <laughs> as my mother and I always had this joke, no valuable reason. Um you know, and and so this willingness of state le- of the state legislature here in Nashville, per, per se, specifically, to to embrace uh, anti democratic tactics, right? Um, so that does, you know, so it's like I can say you need to register and you need to vote, but I think voting with your dollars is a very important tool when you're faced with people who are actively trying to limit people's rights to vote or to discount those votes once they once they've happened you know expelling those two reps was expelling the votes of four, 140,000 Tennesseans well thank you so much for shining a light on this and continuing to fight the good fight um we will do everything we can to uh, support it thank you so much appreciate it jay thanks so much yeah, great stuff. Well, and if, you know, it's an interesting sort of uh, conundrum that, that folks in Nashville have, which is Nashville is a very liberal part of the state. Um, and, you know, all of these things are affecting that town. And um, yeah, it's well, a shot across the bow, really. It's, it's it saying, is. you know what, you need, you're on notice. And if you want our business, you know, all the dollars that come with all of these people coming to your city for this conference, you know, um, you need to be aware of this. So thank you so much, uh, Portia, uh, for that. Another thing that I saw this week, I was reading Bob Lefset's um, uh, newsletter, um, and something jumped out at me. There were, I, sometimes he sends out these emails that are people responding to mm-hmm. things that have been written. And when I was in Nashville a week or so ago, we did this presentation on how tech has disrupted the music business over the years. And that's what this response was in his newsletter. It was from Mike Karen. And Mike Karen wrote an email to Bob Lefsetz. And uh, it had some disruptions in there. And some of them we didn't really cover in our presentation, but I thought they were super interesting. It is, absolutely. So the first one he mentions is the Beatles, Abbey Road, and the eight-track. Basically, they went from four-track to eight-track recordings. And on that last Abbey Road record, we're using the Mellotron, which was kind of the first sampler. And they also used a modular Moog synthesizer. Uh, he mentioned, obviously, uh, Herbie Hancock breaking the rules and using synths in jazz back in the mid-70s. He said with the Jupiter 8, but that didn't exist in the 70s. But I know he's saying with synthesizers. He also mentioned drum machines, early 80s, putting drummers out of work and people panicking about mm-hmm. that. Of course, CDs in the mid-80s and the changing the feel from what vinyl we were used to. Mm-hmm. He also mentioned uh, back in the late 80s sampling, which so many people called not artistic. And of right. course, I remember that very well. Yeah. I'll let you take the other couple. Well, uh, he listed a few others. Uh, 90s computer tracking, replacing tape, uh, which echoed a lot of the above points, right? Then the next mm-hmm. one, number seven, was auto-tune in the 2000s yeah. and its implications. Yeah, 100%. Um, number eight, plugins and minimal prices or subscriptions, you know, that mimic any instrument. Uh, and, and you see that across the board, right? Number yep. nine, 2010's distribution 
available to all that allows anyone to get their art to the world. You know, the DIY distributors, a huge, huge thing. And then the last one, 2020's band lab and iPhone apps that, you know, they brought competitive recording to everyone who has a smartphone. And when I was in Nashville, I got to meet with band labs, uh, CEO, uh, if you don't know about BandLab, uh, Google them. They've got like 60 million users. It's a, yes. it's quite a, an amazing platform. Yes. So he ends with saying, embrace tech, enjoy the disruption, even a little chaos, and get ready for the next boom and creative breakthroughs that make the music industry the best industry. Well, yeah. A, well put, a, Mike Karen. Well Thank yeah, you so much absolutely. for that. That was really cool. Um, for our second audio drop, before we dive into the stories, um, you and I are friends with uh, Garrett Levin uh, from mm-hmm. Dima. Um, we think the world of him. He's a passionate music guy. He's got a tough job, um, you know, representing the likes of people like Spotify and Apple Music. But he's very measured, uh, very even-handed, and uh, very fair. So we we really enjoy speaking with him. And there were a couple of pieces uh, that Dima released recently, one about country music and then one about the broader kind of uh, impact on the U.S. economy that streaming has. And so instead of us walking through those, I thought it'd be interesting to go right to the source. So mm-hmm. here's Garrett Levin uh, from Dima to walk us through that. Garrett, so good to see you. Um, you have a new study on music streaming's impact on the U.S. economy that uh, just came out. There were some surprising findings. Uh, tell us about that. Jay, always a pleasure to chat with you. Thanks for having me on to talk about this stuff. Um, yeah, so we we put out a, a report that looks at, um, kind of tries to take another look at different ways to think about the economic impact of streaming. This is not about how much money is paid by the streaming services to the rights holders and the recorded music industry. That, there's been a lot of ink spent <laughs> on that. We've talked about that a lot. This is a little bit of a different look. It's at how is streaming actually impacting the broader U.S. economy, looking at job creation, GDP impact, things like that. Um, And we, you know, because of the trailing time to actually have data on the economy and stuff, we looked at 2021 um, and we found some really fascinating things. Uh, For example, for every nine, uh, excuse me, for every one job uh, in the music streaming industry, nine other jobs are generated throughout the U.S. economy. Wow. Uh, and that that ends up equaling over 90,000 jobs kind of directly or indirectly generated from the music streaming industry. Um, one of the coolest figures that, that, that turned up in this is for every dollar that music streaming generates for um, the, the U.S. economy or for every dollar mm-hmm. of economic value, an additional $1.65 is generated throughout the economy. And that comes in a lot of different forms. What's interesting to me about that is that's higher than other industries that we think about, like electronics manufacturing, video games, and even kind of the broader music industry as a whole. Um, And so our hope is that this this, uh, look at uh, music streaming helps us all think a little bit differently about some of these questions and and recognizes that while we are all rightly focused on and talk a lot about how much money is generated for recorded music, for publishers, for PROs, all that kind of stuff, we also think about where streaming sits uh, within the the entire U.S. economy, and so I encourage everybody to read it. It's on our website. It's a uh, it's um it's pretty dense as economic reports often are, but uh, I also think it's like fairly accessible. And we did some cool infographics to try to you know summarize some of the, the key findings as nice. well. And there was another report um, from Dima, uh, streaming country music forward. You know about country music. Talk about those findings. Yeah, so um, we did a report similar to this um, last year on Latin music. Um, And one of the things that we've realized as an organization is that we are sitting on a wealth of information uh, simply because of the people who work at the the member companies um, and who live and breathe uh, whether it's different genres, different kind of R&D and innovation kinds of things. So last year we put out this report 
uh, called Streaming the Latin Music Revolution that was all about the relationship between streaming and Latin music. And Streaming uh, Country Music Board is really about unpacking the relationship between streaming and country music as a genre about how, and we talked to kind of leading country music execs at all five of the, the, the DEMA member companies uh, and got their insights on like what streaming has meant for uh, the relationship between artists and fans for the genre, what it mean, what does country music actually mean today? Uh, the reach of, of country music around the world uh, and the ways in which and the technological innovation of streaming has 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 changed the genre, sure. and uh, we um, include in there um, some uh, some data that we pulled from our recent consumer survey. We had this massive three thousand person survey out in the field uh, last year that we've been pulling data from. Um, and it looked at people who stream and people who don't stream. And so what we've got in this report is data about people who listen to country music, streamers who listen to country music. Um, and it's got really cool information there. It's got information about you know, how country music streamers compare to non-streamers in terms of uh, how much money they spend on the music economy. You know, talking about 1.6 times more being spent by country music listeners who stream versus those who don't stream. Um, we've got stuff in there that really goes to the heart of what streaming does, you know, recommendations, customization, that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. And, the, and one of the things that we found is that 69% of uh, country music streamers are likely to uh, listen, to continue to listen to artists or songs that they are recommended by streaming services. And what that tells us, and the, the, the execs in the, in the report talk about this, and we had a cool rollout event of this in Nashville on Tuesday, they talked about it live during a panel discussion, is it really speaks to the, the, the desire of country music listeners and country music fans to hear more, to find people who they haven't found before, to be introduced to new artists um, and new songs. Uh, and one of the things that was talked about during the, the panel and that I think that the services are really excited about is, are we on the cusp of country music kind of being the next big breakout genre in streaming after Latin and hip hop and like being able to reach a truly global audience and kind of break out of, um, of much like for hip hop and, and Latin and art of artificial barriers that have yeah. traditionally sat around the genre. Yeah. Fantastic reports, so much to learn in here. You guys did such a great job. Uh, Always a pleasure. Thanks so much for uh, joining us today. Thank you. I love stuff like this, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> it's so, you know, the, 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 the nuts and bolts and, and it was just interesting. Yeah. Um, I love the stats that he comes up with. I always learn things from their reports. And, you know, as you and I always say, there's three sides to every story, yours, mine, and the truth. Uh, yes. th thank you, Ricky Warwick. Um, but um, let's, let's jump in. But before we do, you and I got a screener of the new documentary, um, blood, sweat and tears. It's, it's called, uh, what the hell happened to blood, sweat and tears. And thank you, Kim Britton. Um, yeah. the fine folks over at Abrama Rama put this documentary together and I didn't know this story. I, I loved the band. They were massive in their day. Mm -hmm. I had no idea that this happened talk about it a little bit because you yeah. had a little bit more of a close encounter well the, the so this this uh, documentary is basically on they they were kind of strong-armed into doing a uh, a tour for the state department to eastern europe you know then part of the communist bloc yeah. and so this was in the summer of 1970 and these guys were riding high i mean they were they were amongst the biggest bands in the world and that it was technically their second album it was really the first album with that with that lead singer David Clayton Thomas, and um, and th so this is kind of about how why how and why they were strong armed into doing this tour, and kind of what ha what it was like on the road, and the the weirdness that it was to going to these communist countries, and you know it, it was their their experiences were in some countries super positive and people totally got into it. And then in other countries, like not so much, like no. it was just, it sounded so foreign to them. And all and they of these were blazing were a trail, right? I mean, later oh, Elton yeah. John, Billy Joel, you know, Paul McCartney, a lot of people had played in some of these countries that didn't really have rock concerts and record stores yes. and all that. This was groundbreaking. I mean, no one had ever seen anything like this. 
and you kind of forget how big uh, blood, sweat, and tears were. Oh yes, and in yep. those days, massive. massive, massive, massive. That album was number one on the charts, and they had three top huge singles off of that record. And um, yeah, it was just, it's a fascinating documentary. And and as you, as you alluded to, I actually saw them the next summer. So in the summer of seventy one, I saw them at the oh Greek Theater God. in L A. My parents took me. How old were you? I was, I was eleven. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, you know, it was, it was, and that was my, it was a second concert they had taken us to, but it was the first one that was big, like where you got it, you know, and yeah. you could, I remember asking my dad, what is that smell? Yeah. <laughs> he explained to me what marijuana was and, and, uh, wow. it was a fun, you know, my brother and I look back on that as, as super cool experience. And, you know, we kind of like the first time you go to a, a, a tower records that, that, you know, that just a year before we had done that for the first time. And you're kind of like, it just opens your eyes and you see, wow, this is a concert. And, you know, we were already into music, but when you see it live, you just get yeah. it. And again, they were enormous at the time. And they took it to a different level. Like you and I talk a lot about bands that when we were growing up, we didn't know how amazing they were as musicians. No. We just liked their songs. But yes. this was probably one of the first bands, and correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the first bands that had kind of like jazz players and they had a killer horn section and they had some yeah. players in that band. It, it reminds weird. me of like, you know, Steely Dan or you know, some of these bands like Toto and Good Weather Report. Yeah. yeah, that have these ridiculously talented players. But we didn't know, when I listened to Blood, Sweat, and Tears, they, to me they were a pop band and they had catchy songs. I had no yes. idea that those guys like Chicago, you know, had these amazing horn players in the band that were just like world class. And it was a great time of experimentation and just what, what a rock band was, you know, that, that these yeah. things were kind of breaking the molds. But uh, yeah. it, it's really a great movie. And I'm not sure when it's coming out, actually. I didn't happen to notice that. But it's, it's not out just yet. I've seen the trailer online. Yeah. Google it. Um, uh, we should have uh, maybe looked that up, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> we'll let you know next yeah, time. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely uh, fantastic. We highly recommend it. And again, um, jot this down. It's What the Hell Happened to Blood, Sweat, and Tears. It's uh, put out by Abramarama. They do so many great documentaries. And thank you, Kim Britton, uh, their publicist, yeah, for you, the uh, screener. We really and appreciate by the way, it. And they're still out on the road. Not any of the original members, but uh, the original drummer Bobby Columbi. He still is. He still owns the name and puts bands out. I saw them last summer. Right. And they were fantastic. Well, they're like, great songs, right? Great. So they're great songs. All comes At the down end to the day, the song. they're great songs. Yeah, without a doubt. Um, so Jay, we should actually mention because last week we almost forgot. Oh my gosh, I almost <laughs> did again. <laughs> we got to thank the wonderful people that uh, that bring us to the party yeah. every week because uh, yeah. since we be, since we started the podcast we've been really lucky with great sponsors. Oh, we really have, and uh, someone who's been there with us the entire time uh, is our buddy uh, Bruce over at Hypebot. Since 2004, Hypebot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. It's edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton with help from Alana Bonilla. Hypebot and sister blog Music Think Tank are published by live music discovery and marketing platform Bands in Town. Yes, indeed. And if you just, uh, if in, maybe you just woke up from a long sleep and you don't know who <laughs> Bands in Town is or are, but how about over 74 million live music fans trust Bands in Town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages from their favorite artists. It is the number one artist service platform connecting over 560,000 artists with their super fans. Managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. Yes, sir. And we're also sponsored by the Music Business Association. I'll actually be speaking at the Music Biz 2023 conference coming uh, coming up May 15th through the 18th in Nashville. Join me and many, many others as we discuss the most important topics for the modern music business. See the full agenda and register on the website. That's right. Absolutely. And don't forget, Jay loves buying drinks for his friends. And uh, don't be shy. Man, Aww. make it a double. Come Aww. on. And uh, by the way, I do this podcast every week with my good buddy, Jay Gilbert. He is a music business consultant. He is the curator of the weekly Your Morning Coffee newsletter, which we, of course, revere. And a former executive with Universal, Sony, and Warner Music Groups. And a music guy through and through. Uh, thank you, my friend. And this guy who's offering my credit card to everybody is Mike Etchart. <laughs> longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio. 
formerly of SST Records, Warner Music, Capital EMI, and Universal Music Groups. Yes, indeed. A sort of sketchy employment record, to say the least, <laughs> but... What are you going to do? You know, you do what you do. Well, let us jump into the stories, Jay. This is the first one is from Wired Magazine. And by the way, God, I love Wired Magazine and have loved it since the beginning. Yes, it's so good. Uh, This article, AI generated music is about to flood streaming platforms. This is, as we said early in the year, this is going to be one of the top things we're going to be talking about the whole time. And of course, uh, this year, I should say. So this is an article. um, It's by Amanda Hoover over at Wired. And it kind of starts by saying there are already countless songs on Spotify, Apple Music and SoundCloud. And as tunes become easier to create, anyone can add to the copyright din. Yeah, there's so much news today about AI that we really kind of curated through what we thought encapsulated everything. And Amanda Hoover at Wired did a great job with this. And she stated that it starts with a familiar intro, unmistakably the weekend's 2017 hit Die For You. But as the first verse of the song begins, a different vocalist is heard, Michael Jackson, or at least a machine simulation of the late pop star's voice. Oh, boy. It's just one example of how artificial intelligence is seeping into the music industry. Surf YouTube or TikTok, TikTok, it's easy for you to say, and you'll find many convincing AI-made covers. The software covers.ai has a waiting list for new users. There's, there's lots of software out there that does this, by the way. But there are also tools that can generate instrumentals from text, give people a starting beat or inspiration, or help them edit tunes. Yeah, AI will no doubt speed the creation of music, but that uh, acceleration comes at a time when music streaming services are already inundated with content, and Jay and I have talked a lot about that. There are now more than 100 million songs on Apple Music, Amazon Music, and Spotify. Listening to them all would take hundreds of years. Even more have been uploaded to SoundCloud. Mm -hmm. AI tools democratize music making, but there's potential for a flood of AI-generated content to be unleashed onto streaming platforms, competing with real people in their compositions for the attention of your ears. Yeah, the music industry, it's often been trepidatious about innovation only to later embrace it. And you and I have seen this firsthand. Um, Martin Clancy, um, he, he was this editor of this book, Artificial Intelligence and the Music Ecosystem. We had him on the podcast. Um, we're going to speak with him again next week. But he's quoted in a lot of these um, articles now because just by being a smart guy writing a book on AI and doing it at a time right before it blows up, you know, it was good timing on on, uh, Mr. Clancy's part. But he said everything was seen as the end of music, you know, those other technologies. and, And we remember it. Right. But AI developments are more than an automated drum machine, computer synth or, or even Napster. Quote, AI is different because of its speed, its scale, its ability for personalization, uh, Clancy says. It really can outcompete with the human endeavor and has the ability to produce a huge amount of material. Uh, it's also a boon to the amateur creator. People might use generators for fun rather than to rival trained musicians, but their work may still crowd the market, says Tatiana Cristiano, a music industry analyst and consultant with Media Research. That poses a challenge because some music streamers don't differentiate between professionally produced and amateur content the way the vi- that video does. Think Netflix compared to YouTube or TikTok in parentheses. Yeah. Spotify will become the place where large portions of consumer-created music ends up mixing in with everything else, she says. Ooh. Music streamers may brag about their libraries, but quantity isn't always quality. So... Many of those songs are never or rarely played. In 2022, 50% of audio tracks followed by the entertainment data company Luminate, used to be SoundScan, MRC, in the U.S. had 10 or fewer on-demand streams. That's 50%. That's according to CEO Rob Jonas. It's a years-long trend that spurred Forgotify, which you and I talk about often on this show, a website that shuffles through unplayed songs from Spotify. And streaming music and storing those vast libraries of unheard tracks has a notable environmental impact. Hmm. 
Yeah, not just anyone can upload to the biggest music streamers. Spotify and Apple require artists to go through a distributor or, or distributor or have a label to upload to the platform. But it's much easier for small artists to do this than for independent filmmakers to find a big name streaming home for their shows and movies. And anyone can upload to SoundCloud, as we've talked about many times. The music business is pushing back against AI, though. Universal Music Group, home to superstars like uh, Taylor Swift and Nicki Minaj and Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan, uh, yeah, from the publishing side, that's right, <laughs> have urged Spotify mm. and Apple to block AI tools from scraping lyrics and melodies from its artist copyrighted songs. The Financial Times reported last week, UMG Executive Vice President Michael Nash, who I used to work for, <laughs> wrote in a recent op-ed that AI music is diluting the market, making original creations harder to find and violating artists' legal rights to compensation from their work. Mike, I'd like to make uh, a prediction. Um, yes. I think, and let's let's see if I'm right, that because this is such a big deal and it's becoming so easy to do, I predict there's going to be uh, another Napster, another illegal site where oh. users will upload their AI-produced songs from all sorts of different artists without publishing clearing, without master mm -hmm. clearing, without any permission whatsoever because... This stuff, when it gets up on SoundCloud and Spotify and Apple Music, it's going to be found and shut down. I mean, it's whack-a-mole. They're going to be of course. trying to keep on top of it. But I sense a, a new change coming. We'll see if I'm right. But, you know, neither Apple nor Spotify returned requests, you know, for this piece that they wrote on AI-generated songs. Um, you know, or whether AI has created more copyright infringement issues for them. The news came on the heels of a request from UMG that a rap about cats in the style of Eminem be removed from YouTube for violating copyright. But the music industry is worried more about AI copycatting uh, a vocal performance. It's also fretting about machines learning from their artist songs, right? Last year, the Recording mm -hmm. Industry Association of America, RIAA, submitted a list of AI, what they call scrapers, to the U.S. government claiming that they're use is unauthorized and infringes on our members rights when they use copyrighted work to train their ai models this argument is similar to the one artists use in a lawsuit brought against ai image generators earlier this year as with that case there's still a lot of unanswered questions about the legality of ai generated art but Aaron Jacobson, a music attorney in Los Angeles, notes that those uploading AI-made material that clearly violates copyright could be held liable. Whether the streamers will be liable is a little bit more nuanced. Yeah, it sure is. Uh, the new generative tech shows a tendency towards mimicry. So earlier this year, Google announced it had created an AI tool called Music LM that could uh, you know, generate music from text enter a prompt asking for a fusion of reggaeton and electronic dance music with a spacey otherworldly sound, for example, and the generator delivers an actual clip. But Google did not release the tool widely, uh, noting in its paper that about 1% of the music generated matched existing recordings. Crazy. Mm. A lot of this AI music could take over the mood-based genres. This is really interesting, like ambient piano music or lo-fi. Mm -hmm. And it may be cheaper for streamers to make playlists using AI-generated music than to pay out even paltry royalties. Clancy says he doesn't think AI is moving too quickly, but that people may be moving too slowly to adapt, which could leave human artists without mm. the equity they deserve in the industry. Changing that means making a clear distinction between AI and human-made music. I don't think it's fair to say AI music is bad or human music, human music is good, Clancy says, but one thing I think we can all agree on is we like to know what we're listening to. Yeah, exactly. And, and there have been people claiming, whether it's Epidemic Sounds or whoever, that there are, there are companies out there that are kind of flooding DSPs like Spotify with AI-generated music uh, that they can own. You know, and, and there are many examples of artists, you know, that are working with AI, not in competition with it, working with it. Um, musician Holly Herndon used AI to create a clone of her voice, which she calls Holly Plus, to sing in languages and styles that she can't. That is brilliant. Mm. Herndon mm -hmm. created it to keep sovereignty over her own voice. But as she told Wired late last year, 
She also did it with, in the hope that other artists would follow her lead. BandLab, we're talking about BandLab again, has a song starter feature which lets users work with AI to create royalty-free beats. It's meant to remove some of the barriers to songwriting. Hmm. AI might become a perfect imitator, but it may not, on its own, create music that resonates with listeners. Our favorite songs capture heartbreak or speak to and shape the current culture. They break new ground during times of political upheaval. AI will have a role in writing, recording, and performing songs. But if people open music streamers and see too many AI-made songs, they may not be able to connect. Yet, yeah. right? <laughs> what a what a fantastic piece. I did print this yeah. out, by the way, because there's so much great information. Uh, great job by Amanda Hoover over at Wired. Um, that, in a nutshell, is a lot of what's going on with AI. It's not all nefarious. Some of the uses are really smart you know that language thing i hadn't considered that was really cool that, that, very clever and i sent you i think an email of of a, a listing i saw on indeed for tiktok music yeah. and as part of the job description saying that they are looking to create ai generated music and you can see why from a from a copyright and royalty uh, perspective that they would want to do that yeah. so it's um as we keep saying, this stuff is coming fast and furious. Um, yeah. And I wouldn't, you know, it's, it's, go ahead. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was, I was just going to say, say all uh, we can do to keep up. <laughs> We're stepping all over each other. Um, I was just going to say that uh, we had a, an intro a couple of weeks ago that was done uh, by AI and it sounds mm -hmm. like a human voice. And I would just encourage our listeners. If you want to learn more about it, just do it. Just try it out. You know, go to uh, your favorite uh, AI platform of choice, whether it's chat GPT and, and ask it, you know, give me a song about such and such written in the style of so and so. And you can take those to a voice generator and just try it and see what comes of it. Um, it's really interesting to go through that process. So, again, well, fantastic and I will piece. say to yeah, you know, ahead. like everything in technology, you know, the more you listen, the more you can kind of hear some cues sometimes that will lead you to believe that that's AI kind of generated. And I was on hold, I think with a bank or some, I can't remember who I was on hold with. And there was, you know, there was, you know, it was, cl it was clear to me that it was AI generated. Yeah. The, the, the things that were being said, you know, kind of the, you know, so-and-so, you know, auto rates and this right, and the other right. thing. And it, it just sounded a little a little stiff and I'm like, Oh my God, that's AI generated yeah. right there. So but here's the thing. Some of the stuff yeah. that I'm listening to, you can't tell, you know, yeah. I, I heard a song and I could have sworn that that was the artist singing it. And I learned that it was generated from AI. So more to cover lots of things in your morning coffee about AI. Um, the next piece is so important and it's something that my company talks about a lot and that is like, well, what's in the Spotify algorithm? And what we've done over the years is just listen to Spotify. What did they say at developers conferences or music conferences? Mm -hmm. Or what did they say in the press or on earning co earnings calls or on their website? What are they telling you is in their algorithm? And this is another great um, example of that. It, it's actually a video. Um, from a series from the Wall Street Journal called um, Wall Street Journal Explains. And there's a link in your morning coffee uh, to watch this. But Mike and I are going to walk through some of the things that were said because I think it's super interesting. Um, so Spotify's head of personalization, it's uh, Ziad Sultan. He explains in this video how popular playlists like Discover Weekly, you know, Release Radar, how they're created and how the platform uses machine learning technology to generate personalized recommendations. As the VP of personalization at Spotify, uh, Ziad Sultan heads up product, engineering, design, data, research, and full-on operations for their personalization team. That's a lot of stuff, actually. Yeah. Uh, Spotify, as you might remember, entered the scene in 2008. To today, with 500 million monthly users, Spotify is the world's largest music streaming service. 
It's known for its personalization playlist made with its recommendation algorithm. As Ziad said, think about users as this raw material. And then on top of that data, and then on top of the data layer, we're able to build shared models. Mm. Yeah, and they show some examples of these models in the video. I highly recommend that you watch it. It's so good. But, you know, relying on so much artificial intelligence has drawn criticism from industry experts that are worried about algorithmic bias. And Tatiana Sirisano talked about this and we had it in the podcast last week. But here's how Spotify uses AI to personalize users' experiences on the platform. In the early 2000s, many people found music recommendations through top charts and early streaming platforms like Pandora and Last.fm. Right. Now, so uh, Thomas Hodgson studies algorithms and artificial intelligence with a focus on how new technology from music streaming companies impact artists. And he said it's not so much that they that the first people to start using. I'm sorry, let me start that again. It's not so much that they are the first people to start using analytics to recommend to recommend music, but it was the way in which they combine various computational techniques in order to make their recommendations feel more life. Yeah, they interviewed Thomas in here, and he's he's super smart, and uh, I learned a lot from that. In 2014, Spotify acquired a music analytics firm, Echo Nest, right? And they blended machine learning and natural language processing to build a database of songs and artists. Spotify says this technology marked an important step in the evolution of its recommendation system. So how does that system work? Well, it starts with a process called collaborative filtering. Right. Collaborative filtering. Oh, this is actually from Ziad himself. He said collaborative filtering looks at the pattern across all of this data and tries to understand when do, when do tracks happen to be playlisted together. Very often, it turns out. You can think of it as building a map of music and podcasts. Uh, in, 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 this, uh, in the video, it shows like a cluster of these little green dots. Uh, each point represents a different track in Spotify's catalog, and the location of each point is determined by collaborative filtering, which means that these tracks go together according to the way users have playlisted them and listened to them. Yeah, so if these two songs are frequently playlisted together, they'll be close together on that map that you're referring to, whereas if the songs are never playlisted together, they'll be far farther apart on that map. But recommendations... Um, based purely on collaborative filtering aren't perfect. You know, for example, during the holidays, Mariah Carey, All I Want for Christmas is You, might get playlisted more frequently with Silent Night, even though All I Want for Christmas is You sounds like a pop song and Silent Night sounds like a Christmas carol. Right. If Spotify only generated recommendations based on proximity, then users uh, who like Mariah Carey might get recommended Silent Night when they aren't interested in Christmas. To prevent this, Spotify adds another layer of analysis called content-based filtering. This algorithm gathers metadata like the release date and the label and, exec and, and, ex and executes a raw audio analysis. It uses metrics like danceability and loudness to describe the sonic characteristics of the track. That's crazy. I mean, they can even tell what, you know, what key it's in. The algorithm right. dissects each track's temporal structure. And, and the video shows a visual representation of that, you know, using uh, Antihero by Taylor Swift. It shows the beats, the bars, the section, the chords, the notes. It's really interesting. Um, Content-based filtering that you're referring to also takes into account uh, cultural context which means studying the lyrics and analyzing the adjectives used to describe the track in articles and blogs. Wow, that's crazy. These filtering techniques are not unique to Spotify, but industry experts say what sets the platform apart is the amount of user data it has and the products it creates from it. Spotify says its content-based filtering technology has evolved over the years and now includes more advanced proprietary-facing features. Yeah, but Thomas uh, Hodgen says the danger with algorithms is that they could reinforce existing biases. And we talk about this a lot. It's really important. Uh, quote, this could mean that a particular catalog of music has more male artists than female artists. One of the dangers with machine learning is that as listeners start to engage with that catalog, those biases become magnified. And this creates what's called a kind of feedback loop. 
Spotify says its research teams evaluate and mitigate against potential algorithmic inequities and harms and strive for transparency about its impact. Another criticism is that the algorithm isn't optimized for new artists because there's no user data. This is known as the cold start problem. Ziad Sultan says this is where human editors play a significant role in delivering recommendations. Right, but Hodgson says the bigger concern is that certain metrics used in the platform's audio analysis might also be culturally biased. He points out that, quote, in other, wor- or in other parts of the world, they have musical systems and musical cultures that are entirely different than ours. You know, they use uh, an example of North Indian classical track, you know, uh, just as an example. Spotify's algorithm labels its that's key signature as E minor, which Hodgson says is inappropriate for that musical tradition. Right. And he goes on to say, however, it's still the case that the music that is emerging from South Asia is being understood algorithmically under the Western equal temperament scale, which is not what they do over there. So Spotify says the audio analysis is one small part of the overall system, which takes into account many factors before making a recommendation. Some industry experts also point to issues with how the system understands metadata for classical music, for example. The metadata for Tchaikovsky track, you know, that could include not just the name of the work and the artist, but also the movement, uh, opus number, conductor. Spotify's algorithm isn't optimized for that, at least not yet. Apple, sure, but Apple Music, which has emerged in recent years as a competitor to Spotify, released a new app in March that the company says is designed to solve this problem. Spotify says it doesn't comment on a competitor's marketing campaigns. Yeah, but in February, the streaming service joined the recent buzz around generative AI. Spotify's quote-unquote DJ mode, which you and I have talked about extensively, gives the algorithm a human voice, uh, Xavier Jernigan, and offers listeners additional context around recommendations. Uh, Ziad Sultan says the company is also exploring reinforcement learning, uh, a technique that would allow the recommendation system to learn automatically based on feedback. He says it will help with the diversity of their recommendation. It will help with the longer term retention. And we're trying to push the state of the arts in each of those, introducing new technologies and new capabilities and bringing new experiences. Yeah, super cool. A lot of great information in there uh, about Spotify's uh, their algorithms, their platform, how they look at data and how much data they have. I mean, if you've got 500 million users, just think of all of that data that they get to kind of play with. Stunning. Absolutely stunning. But it's, uh, you know, when you just, uh, the, the, all of these various technologies that are going on around music are really, really unbelievably and very interesting and, I mean, but it's just, it's, it's, it's mind numbing. Yeah. Lots of, great lots stuff. of stuff to know, yeah. but let's go on to our last story. It's from our good friend, uh, Ari Herstad. It's yeah. from Variety. Actually venues need to stop shaking down artists for every last dollar. Yeah. And, uh, wow. An interesting article. And, and I hear this a lot, Mike, um, yeah, we do. Uh, with, yes. with, uh, you know, a lot of my artists, um, you know, getting, uh, for example, a big cut of their, you know, merch sales at some of these venues, uh, the venue takes. And sometimes a little bit is warranted if they're staffing it, um, but oftentimes they're not, and they're still taking a big chunk. And I know this has been an issue, you know, with a lot of artists. And I'm so glad that uh, Ari kind of is shining a light on some of these inequities. Yeah, the article starts with him saying, last week I went to see one of my favorite artists, Theo Katzman, play the Wiltern Theater in Los Angeles. And he said, Theo, who I recently featured on the New Music Business podcast, is a completely independent artist. No label, no manager. And Ari goes on to say, I wanted to avoid the exorbitant service fees tacked onto tickets when purchasing online. So I showed up to the Wiltern's box office the moment it opened on the the show day to snag what I thought would be a $30 face (laughs) value ticket. However... When it came to time to pay, the clerk told me it would be $35. There's a $5 per ticket service fee added, she explained. I asked her, how can I avoid this service fee? And she said, uh, you can't. It, I, that's just, that's maddening. Like, well, then why do you advertise a $30 ticket when you can't buy a $30 ticket? Ari goes on to say, I was confused and disappointed as to what, quote unquote, service the Wiltern was providing by selling me a ticket at their physical box office. The ticket wasn't even printed. They texted it to me. There's a lot of discussion around the excessive fees tacked on to tickets these days. But 
holy cow. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, and, and it, I can't, there's probably every listener that's listening to us right now has had this experience, whether you're at a restaurant or anywhere, there's this kind of, it's skimming, you know, it's, and again, you talk, you know, if it's just a dollar here or even a few pennies here, it really can add up. And, um, yeah. He goes on to say that uh, Maggie Rogers held what she called Box Office Day, where fans could show up to venue box office in offices in person and snag tickets before they went on sale online to avoid some, but notably not all, of the fees. Uh, and Ari spoke with uh, her manager, Jonathan Eshack, about Box Office Day, and he discussed a bit more of the reasoning behind the stunt. He said, this is not an anti-Ticketmaster strategy, he professed. If there is a way we can make sure that we're creating an environment for her fans and her community to get as affordable a ticket as possible and a legitimate ticket, then we wanted to provide an option to do it. So we wanted to at least express to her fans that she is hearing them and she wanted to be part of a small solution to a problem. Yeah, it's been uh, uh, on the, you know, the tops of our minds recently with all of the ticket uh you know, stories that have been uh, out lately. Um, Ari spoke to Theo Katzman's booking agent, Tom Windish. He also represents Billie Eilish, Alt-J, you know, many others. Um, he also talked to Trey Manny, who represents Beach House, Lord Her- Huron, uh, Death Cab for Cutie, Fleet Foxes. Both of those are at uh, Wasserman Music. And he talked about, you know, today's artist deals. And when asked if agents, you know, can ever strike the expense uh, expenses from the settlement, many explained, quote, absolutely, yes, it just depends on the size of the room and what the artist wants, because on one hand, you want to make sure that the artist has everything they need for the show when they arrive, but on the other hand, they don't want to pay extra for all the stuff they don't need. You know, you want to verify this, uh, all these expenses in advance, but those fees, you know, they're they're sometimes they're less successful at removing, you know, these merch fees. Most venues take 10% to 40% cut of the artist merch sales. Wow. And Ari says, I'm sorry, but this is insane. The artist doesn't get to share in any of the revenue that the venue makes from the bar, the kitchen, the coat check or parking or the, or, or, or those service fees, but the venue gets to keep money from merch and fans wonder why shirts and mementos cost so much at concerts. Well, here's the deal. The margins on merch are not that great. An artist might make a 30% profit on a t-shirt sale, not to mention the opportunity cost of people's time it took to design the merch. But if the venue is taking a 30% cut of merch, then the artist actually is losing money by selling merch. So the artist can either mark up their merch items, in effect upsetting their fans for charging so much, or take the hit and look at merch as simply a promotional item. Uh, and then the Ishak yeah. revealed, we've done this, the math at our company, we've paid hundreds of thousands of dollars on multiple clients to just venues on merch fees. And then you look at the P&L at the end of the day and you're like, was the time spent on this even worth it? Ari says, I believe it's unethical for a venue to take a cut of the artist's merch. It's a shameful practice and every agent should push hard to remove merch fees. Artists need every last dollar to survive on the road. Yeah, and you can do that. I had an artist just finish a multiple, almost like 40-date tour, and on most of those dates, they could renegotiate uh, some of those uh, merch fees. So we're looking at like ticket fees, right? We're looking at uh, venues taking a cut of, of the merch. You know, Ari states that, you know, a tour merch tracking platform and POS system at venue that most uh, touring bands use um, at venue told him that the average spend per head at a 500 to 1000 cap room is about $3 and 65 cents. Meaning that if you know a thousand people attended your show, you could expect around 3,650 in merch sales. However, Ari spoke to managers who say that their artists sometimes make upwards of $8 per head in merch sales. So many touring bands uh, play mid-sized clubs might be bringing in $10,000 a night in merch. And that's true. I've seen it. Um, if a venue skims 20% of that, that's $2,000 a night that the artist is losing. And, and if that was a 50-date tour, that's a hundred grand. Yeah, yeah, that's brutal. He he kind of closes it by saying, uh, back at the Wiltern, Theo Katzman and his band put on a great show. 
Ari decided to buy a hat at the merch booth and was surprised that after he tapped his credit card, a tip window popped up on the screen, the kind you get at coffee shops or restaurants. He says, I asked the merch seller who worked for the Wiltern who the tip was going to, the band or the seller? And she said it went to her, the seller. He said, everyone is skimming off the top of artists and it's disgusting. There is no universe where merch sellers should be making tips from the artist fans. If anything, those tips should be going to the artists. Um, Amen. So, uh, yeah, although I would say, though, but if if the I, I don't in that particular case, I think it's OK to tip the person who's selling it for you. Um, but again, the numbers seem mm. out of whack and know. it's not worth two thousand dollars to have an employee of the venue sit there and sell, you know, it, it sets, sell the merch for you. That That's a pretty big stiff you know, for, yeah. for, for the artist. So, yeah. Well, hopefully by uh, shining a light on some of these practices, um, we're definitely talking about it more. And like I said, some venues, you can renegotiate uh, those uh, fees and, and some of the cuts and things, but look, same with ticket prices and these fees. I just think it's ridiculous that you can't go somewhere and get a ticket at face value. And maybe there are places, but as Ari points out, he went to the box office yeah, and he was charged a five dollar convenience fee for going to the box office to buy the ticket. And when he asked, "Well, where can I buy it without having this fee?" the answer was, "You can't." So that's an issue. Right. And I think we're both saying, you know, I don't mind paying a fee if I know upfront, you know, and don't right. don't kind of try to hide it and then jam it on me at the last minute. It's like that's just. It's yeah. not cool. Yeah. So anyway, Great all right. job, well, we got to wrap up. Yeah, we do. Yes, Ari, good to, always good to hear from him. And uh, as we wrap up 141, we do want to say, hey, thanks for listening in, Jay and I certainly appreciate it. If you enjoy the show, please do tell one fan. Jay and I uh, would say a hearty thank you if we saw you in person. So big thanks to Hypebot, Bands in Town, and the Music Business Association. And on behalf of the 17th hardest working man in show business, Jay Gilbert, may I say thanks for listening. We will see you next time on the Your Morning Coffee podcast. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know. 